helping you to be the best version of you. This is the Team Forces Podcast. Here's your host, Heleth Kendrick. This is a Team Forces Podcast. I'm Heleth Kendrick, and in this episode, we will speak to veteran and adventurer Sam Cox. We're now at the end of October 2023, and next week, Sam will be leaving to embark on a journey that's yet to be accomplished. He will be traveling solo, unsupported, over 2,000 kilometers across Antarctica in some of the world's most inhospitable landscapes. We talk about his preparation, his training, the expedition itself, and why he's doing this. We also talk about how he will face some of the biggest challenges that he's ever faced and how he will overcome them, about his resilience training, his sponsorship, and his diet. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for listening. Sam Cox, tell me a little bit about you. Tell me about why did you join the Royal Marines and tell me a little bit about your background and, and your childhood and um, what inspired you to, to join the military. Me and my mum moved down to Devon when I was about, I think I was about nine or ten and, and a couple of years of primary school, South Devon. And then in secondary school, knew a couple of guys who were a few years above me who joined the Marines straight from school. And then I live about 45 minutes from Limpston where we do all our training. So sort of in the area and there's a lot of people around who told great stories about their time in the in the Royal Marines. And that sort of tickled the fancy and then mixed with um, being quite outdoorsy anyway. I, I quite enjoyed going on to Dartmoor and spending days on Dartmoor or being out and camping and things like that. It sort of confirmed it. So that, that's pretty much all I wanted to do from probably the age of 14, 15 maybe. Looked to join before I went to university and then um, I was far too young. I was just 18 when I went on my first um, selection course and it, it didn't go well. I was far too young for that. Um, so I went off to university and then joined uh, straight away afterwards. So I was, I was just 21. Um, I'm glad I sort of took the time to, to grow up a bit before I joined properly. And what did you do in university? Completely related to the to the military world is sport and exercise science, which I've never oh. touched since. So well worth it, but it's more of a maturing process. I think I valued um, rather than the actual educational qualification. And that was back in 2010. You joined the armed forces. Is that right? Yeah. So I started training in late August 2010, um, and then passed out training. It's a 15 and a bit month process. I passed out of training uh, in December. 2011. And then where did that take you? I did all sorts. I've never really stayed at one one unit for for too long. A lot of people who who've been in the Royal Marines are oh, where did he where did he works. A lot of people spend a lot of time at one place. I've I've been everywhere really. Two nine um, commandos, so the artillery down in Plymouth, uh, CLR who are up in Barnstable, uh, Yeovilton as as Mayor. I was Agile 40 commander. I've, I've done I've done all sorts of jobs. I've been around doing different things at different headquarters as well. So um, it's been nice and varied. I really enjoyed that, actually. I think I like doing different things quite quickly. I think two years is the perfect job time before you then start to either get a little bit bored, but then conversely, you also know as much as possible at the two-year point before you then disappear and never touch it again. So um, I suppose there's pros and cons to, to the way we deploy and get assigned um, around the Royal Marines. You've obviously seen a lot of, um, actually been to Iraq, Afghanistan. Tell me a little bit about what, you know, sort of the tours that you've done. Uh, so Iraq was the end of the, the Herrick day. So that was um, spring, summer 2013. So just over 10 years ago, I didn't go out with 40 Commander who were the, the unit deployed on Herrick 17. So I did Herrick late Herrick 17, Herrick 18. I did that with Yeovilton, um, which is a really good tour, actually. We sort of got the best of both worlds. I lived in Bastion, so it was nice and relatively comfortable, but we 
around the ground probably every other day um, doing a lot of helicopter raids and things like that, which is really interesting. But then you also get the joys of having a nice coffee when, when you get back and being a bit more comfortable. And then Iraq, I was JTACing. Oh, so that's fast air control against ISIS when, when they were in the peaks of their power. So that was their sort of start of their decline was when I was out there. So that was really interesting working with the Australians and, and Americans. Um, and a few other people but uh, yeah really really interesting and then I suppose on the other side of the the non-kinetic side was a deployment to the Caribbean on the the great litter sweep of after Hurricane Irma then the hurricane happened we we it was lunchtime when we found out and then the first guys were getting on the coach to go to Bryce Norton just before midnight that evening so it's less than 12 hours that the guys were packed and ready to go and then we went out a few days later after getting everyone else out and not really sleeping with me and a few others so Busy, busy few weeks and then came back home after mopping up some puddles. I think it's a little bit more than that. I mean, what did your training really give you to sort of prepare yourself for that? Because, I mean, it's very easy for people in this country where the comfort that we, we are in is kind of understand, remember really the, the huge tragedy that was around that hurricane. How did your military training prepare you for that? The first thing, we, we always got told expect the unexpected. So we'd always get random things at Limpston where you'd finish, you'd come in on a Friday afternoon, um, for an exercise and the normal routine was you deservice your weapons and then you do all your equipment and then you'd shower and we, we did all that and got told to go down to one of the lecture halls for, for a debrief and then that was we're staying on camp for the weekend and then we ended up I think we did a mud run that night and then had another full inspection the following day it's just it, that's what they bring into you so the change of circumstances aren't a big surprise and at the time you're, you're thinking what, what on earth is this for I don't understand and then afterwards you realize oh we've done worse it's always worse and I suppose it's the the ability to be comfortably uncomfortable so be in an uncomfortable situation but make yourself comfortable I suppose that's one thing that the Marines are quite good at is when we go somewhere if it's not particularly well looked after before we get there we'll try and do it up to make it as comfortable as possible even if you're there for a few days why be completely miserable when you, you can at least focus on doing something outside of work to make your life slightly more appealing when you when you do end up getting your head down or something like that then humans we are creatures of habit aren't we so being told on a friday afternoon as you said you've done your, your tools and your end of the week you've had a long cold hard week and then you're told that you're going on a mud run that's really going to build resilience isn't it and make you a little bit more adaptable yeah i had a bad knee at the time as well i remember really well taking a knee on the, there's a set of gates uh down past the bottom field so you sort of walk past bottom field with all our, all our field kit taking a knee and like really uncomfortable and then we got into the mud and put up a, a harbour in the mud so all our kit was out and that's had to do sentry and stuff for about an hour until the tide started coming back in and then <laughs> packed everything up and got back in sopping wet to deservice the kit you had just deservice it was a it was a strange evening your lovely wife abby when did you meet abby so we met before i joined the military and then um, we used to work together and I was a lifeguard. We were both lifeguards before I joined the military. And then we probably got together at the end of training, actually. So she's been there pretty much my entire military journey, which is which is quite nice. So she's fully understanding. It's probably as adaptable as I am when it comes to these sort of things. I had a, a lovely chat with her, actually. And she's really behind you on this. And also a young mum as well. So you've got a little daughter, haven't you, who's now eight months old, is it? No, not quite. She's, she's five she's, and a half months. So leaving them behind, so to speak. But she's used to all of that. If she's been you know, with you th- since 2010 and, and from the beginning, she will understand what it's like to have long periods of separation. So going on to talk about your expedition, now that is something quite remarkable, which we're very excited to be talking about. I I don't even know where to begin. Where do we start on this? 
Antarctica is one of the last great wildernesses on the planet, isn't it? It's 2,000 kilometres. Why did you want to do this in the first place? So why is always a question I've been asked first, pretty much. Um, the idea came about in the first lockdown. So I'd been away on an exercise in Brunei where we didn't have phone signal or any communication, really. And when we left the UK in January, COVID was a nothing you know, it's ninth or tenth on the news. It was this weird thing happened in China that no one really knew anything about or cared particularly about. Went away to Brunei, working all the waking hours, and the only time you're off was when you went to went to sleep. So then we came off the exercise, flew back within 24 hours from coming off the exercise because they were shutting, Brunei was shutting the borders. Got back to the UK late Saturday afternoon, and then the UK went to lockdown that Monday evening. So I went into town for a coffee on Sunday and nothing was open or was you know, like a weird ghost town. So I went from being really busy to this weird life to sit on the sofa. And then I finished watching telly one day after watching another Netflix binge. Abby's a physio, I's a physio. So she was busy on the COVID wards doing um, respiratory work. I need something to focus my mind. So I started looking at a few different things. I'm not a runner at all. So I didn't want to do an ultramarathon or running like that. I have no mountain experience. So I didn't want to start from a complete novice trying to do some sort of high altitude stuff. And then I spent a few winters in Norway. So I spent about six months in Norway with work. So I thought I'll do something cold weather and Antarctica popped up. Um, And that's where the idea came from and started doing a bit of research, reading a few books. And then it was the second lockdown in the November. I was like, no, I'm going to do this now. I told a few people and then that's that's me committed. Once I've told a few mates, you can't sort of back down. Otherwise, you're going to be asked about it and you're like, oh, I did fancy it. So so that's that's when the idea became a project is November 2020, purely from a bit of lockdown boredom after watching Tiger King. (laughs) <laughs> you telling me about that and I think going back to that moment where you've gone from being a really busy you know in demand traveling around the world and then all of a sudden you're back home your wife is going is obviously very busy with the covid ha- with everything happening there that moment when you're watching that Netflix it's you know so many people were in that situation what do you think for you was that deciding factor what made you get off the couch and go actually do you know what I'm going to do something quite different what was that deciding factor for you I don't know, I'd always done professional goals. Anyone who's been in the military knows it's quite easy to sink your teeth into a professional goal, whether that's a career course or a um, qualification or you know, doing something like a project at work. And actually, I'd never done anything just for me, if that made sense, like a personal project. Um, you know, you give up quite a lot. I joined, joined the Royal Marines just 21. So, you know, I'd not played rugby since university. I hadn't, hadn't sort of been able to have the time to get a proper hobby or, or do anything too much just because you're here, there and everywhere doing different things. And so I wanted something for myself. And I think that was one of the main reasons. And I mean, sat on your sofa um, in a lovely summer of 2020, that was quite nice weather. It's quite easy to plan and get a bit fanciful. And I think that's where the idea came from. And actually, in hindsight, it's quite a big expedition and project to pull off. Very ambitious for your for your, for your first one. <laughs> so I wanted something that was going to be a mental aspect to it in terms of the planning. It'll be nearly four years from the first idea by the time I by the time I finish it. So you know, it's, it's given me a lot of challenges, whether that's mentally preparing for it, physically preparing for it, and then hopefully in a few weeks' time, physically actually doing it. So yeah, it's a strange one, but. And it's quite hard to properly put into words, um, but I suppose yeah, the, the idea of having a nice big long-term project to, to help me focus whilst I was bored at home is probably the main reason, um, or the starting reason anyway. And are you still in the forces or are you leaving the forces now? I left in June this year, so my final day in work was ooh, late January, I think, and then had quite a bit of time built up, so I had quite a nice time off. So trained for the expedition was quite handy um, out in Sweden um, for just under a month and then got a new job in the summer. In 
typical military style, you've kind of skipped through this. I've had an idea, sit on a couch, had an idea, and now I'm going to be walking Antarctica. I mean, the barriers and the hoops and the the things that you've had to jump through, uh, just kind of talk me through a few of the barriers that you may have come across. I mean, firstly, your friends and family, they must have thought, well, you, know, you had a young baby on the way. Tell me about the barriers that you kind of first came across with this. Barriers, I suppose, I suppose the first one people think when you say you're doing something like this is, is like it just comes out of nowhere. But if you think I've been camping and doing things on Dartmoor from the age of 13, 14, this is a 20 year buildup of adventure. So, so I didn't just jump it straight into this from zero to here. It's taken a long time to get to here. So in terms of the adventure barrier, I think I had a bit more of a head start. I know it's been a professional adventure rather than a, a personal adventure in terms of the militaries. That, that gives you definitely gives you a big head start because you know how to look after yourself and you know the, know the basics of camping and things like that when pretty much any 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 environment but the sort of the the first hurdle I came across was probably the first winter training I did and trying to translate the military Norway routine to then making it an efficient expedition routine so things like the tent is in Norway it's all very rigid you do it as a team you take everything down at a certain time and then you pack everything away in a certain way whereas actually there's no need to take all the poles out of a tent when you're just by yourself as you can pretty much just sort of collapse it and roll it up and put it in a bag, which which doesn't work for the for the military side. Things like putting things away at night, there's no need to put your, your cooker away at night because no one's going to come and take it off you. It's you and some penguins in Antarctica. So, so that was probably the first challenge I properly noticed. And then, yeah, it's just getting permission from 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 work. So one of the main reasons I left full-time employment for the for the military was they weren't hugely supportive in terms of time. The, the Navy and the Royal Marines don't do adventurous training in the same way that the army and RAF do. So, you know, trying to manage a very busy job and do this, even though this has been, you know, a personal project of mine for, for a couple of years by, by that time was probably the, the second big barrier. And then as with anything, financially is the, the third massive one that um, I was aiming to go last year um, and just didn't get anywhere near the finances through sponsorship and personal savings. Whereas this year, it's given me a bit more time to probably become a bit more credible in the eyes of sponsors. I'm quite thankful, actually. I didn't go last year. I know a lot more now and I'm probably better prepared this year than I would have been last year. With regards to your uh, the finances, I mean, how much of it have you had to put up yourself and how much have you saved? Quite a chunk of, of my own. Um, it's probably about half and half, give or take, which... Um, I'd like to eventually make back through a few projects I've got going on afterwards. Um, so I'm going to start doing some instructing out in Sweden, taking people in, to Sweden to give them an experience in, in the amazing cold weather environment. Um, and hopefully over a, few, over a few years, I can start repaying that debt that I've accrued to do this. The sponsors, who who were sponsoring you? So Team Forces is how we we, we met. Team Forces are fantastic. Um, they, I mean, they do all sorts from the polo and the things like that um, and badminton things like that in the army through to big expeditions like this so in the past they've done um preet sex bed how guys just come back from his everest sex bed and they've got a few more projects in the line including mine um, and they've been fantastic um, and then the other headline sponsor are the company i actually work for resilient nutrition so they ali uh who runs the company was the first sponsor who came on board pretty much as soon as i started looking for sponsorship he came back within the first week and said sounds like a mega project let me know what you need and i actually work for him now so that's that's quite handy so all my food comes from him yeah he's, he's been really good to give me a chance post-military they're the two big headline ones and then uh spectra group joined oh, when was this 
in the summer, I think they've been really good as well. Um, really kind and really generous. Talk to me about the um, the training that you have to do. I mean, the last time I saw you was probably May, and I, I can quite gladly say that you've put on a few pounds, which is good to see. Um, but w- tell me about the the training and the diet and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Training, I suppose, is the cold weather training. So like I said, the I had a good grounding from quite a lot of time in Norway. So I was quite lucky. I knew, I knew a few of the mountain leaders who go out to Norway every year. Um, I managed to jump on some of their military flights whilst I was still serving to train with them under their um, safety bubble. So that, that saved me quite a bit of time, money and effort to organise that properly. And that training was 2022 when I first went out that winter was to make sure I could do the distance. So I pushed myself physically quite hard to make sure I could do the distance each day that that was required and um, prove that to myself. And then this year I spent properly honing the techniques and routines that you'd need to do to make everything efficient. So I think I put my tent up 50 60 times in a, in a week uh, you know every time i stop for a for a drink i put the tent up to make sure i was really good at it a nice efficient way and i've got that down things like the morning routine working out what's the most efficient way to boil water it's really boring and quite sad stuff but you know it all makes a difference and if i can save fuel it means i don't have to take as much with me um same with the skiing technique you look at uh, a lot of the polar wizards that are out there they're usually scandic or canadian they've you know they'll bore my skis on so they're really good so I've, i spent this winter really trying to hone my technique down to make sure that i was as efficient as possible and then physically it's just sort of long laborious runs to make sure that i'm as fit as possible in the right in the right way there's no point doing really quick hit circuits or crossfit circuits or something like that because it's not the right type of fitness Actually, that's quite nice. We went to Leeds Beckett University two months ago to do some scientific tests. So to work out how I burn energy, what sort of energy I burn. And to be doing this sort of thing, you need to be quite a high fat burner rather than carbohydrate burner. And luckily, I am a very efficient fat burner, which is quite useful. Um, Just means you're more efficient in terms of energy intake. So fat has something like nine calories per gram and carbohydrate has four calories per gram. So in terms of the way you metabolize it and how much food you can take so i could take a slightly higher fat diet than your average person which is a weird thing to say and like i said i put on weight now i've been eating a little bit more than i should do um for the past couple of months now to try and put a bit of weight on so you have to consume seven thousand calories a day is that right i think so i estimated it i wasn't too far off actually so that's at leeds beckett they worked it out to be about 7,200. And I think my estimation was about 7,050. 7, so not, not too far off. Um, yeah, so I'm just packing my rations up now, actually, which is what I'm looking at over my spare bedroom at the moment. It's all on the floor, all in packets. And I'm just putting into bags at the moment. The interesting thing with this expedition is my menus for food is, is set. I can't cheat and go to a Greg, so I can't cheat and find a can of Pringles down the back of the sofa or something. It's my, I have 10 different menus for, for each day and then, you know, each of those hopefully about seven times through. So there's no way I can not eat that. That's true. And frostbite, because obviously that's a big thing that people talk about and it's a, mm. it's a big injury. How, how are you going to um, deal with any sort of frostbite injuries? Yeah, prevention mainly. So just layering. So the, what you get taught in Norway is is start cold and warm is people start off with far too many clothes on they end up sweating which then means you're wet and that freezes to your body so there have been people getting frostbite on their like stomachs around their chest because they've got a sweat patch it's then frozen to their to their skin which has then gotten colder and colder and colder and you know gives them some quite nasty injuries and then digits are the other ones that people people get it in um so it's just management of of your work rate your clothing and everything else i've got loads of i've got uh, five different pairs of gloves I can put on in different variations to combat the cold. So that's interesting. I've never heard that, that you, you can layer up too much. 
Yeah, so people, like I said, if you go out, so it's like walking the dog and you're like, it's cold out, I'll put a big thick jacket on and then after 10 minutes of walking the dog, you're roasting and you've got your yeah. done and you're sweating underneath your hat. So it's, it's learning to moderate that. And then you look like an idiot sometimes. If the wind's coming in from, from one direction, you might have three pairs of gloves on one hand and then just a one pair of gloves on the other hand because one hand's going to get too hot because it's not got the wind on it and then the other hand's going to get cold if you... So there's no, no one's around, so no one's going to see it. So um, you can do pretty much anything to... Make sure you're not getting too cold on one side. or Yeah, so it's understanding how your body reacts in the, those situations of what you need and recognising what you need at that point, whether you need three gloves, two gloves or whatever. Mm. It's recognising that, isn't it? If it's the easy way, it's probably the wrong way. So if you're, if you're being lazy, it's probably going to affect you badly later on. So um, just do everything properly. Take an extra two minutes to do something properly rather than just do it easy and um, end up regretting it. I suppose the easiest one is to... Things like putting up your tent, not putting all the pegs in because so you can't be bothered and then the wind changes overnight and your tent's flapping around you've got to get up in the middle of the night to peg yeah. something. So it's things like discipline, which is, which is what you would have learnt in the um, mm. in the military, that's going to really play, you know, take be an important part. So your military training and learning has is really absolutely going to set you apart from just a normal person kind of doing this. I suppose it's that and you learn, you do learn the hard way in the military, so <laughs> they don't really forget it. So I've probably learned a lot of those lessons a lot quicker than some people who maybe haven't joined the military and start doing the adventure world. Um, I think it's something I'd, I'd pass on to anyone asking advice is make sure you do it properly. And then even if I was training someone, it'd be something to let them know if they're doing things incorrectly because it'll help them in the long run. They might not like me at the time, but it definitely helps. And obviously, as this is solo, you're going to not have anybody with you. So you're taking all of your equipment with you. And that's apparently the equivalent of uh, 25 stone, which is two grown men. So you're going to be carrying that for most of the time. Tell me about other stuff, hazards that you're you're going to be prepared for. I'm literally by myself, I suppose, hence the name. And then unsupported is the other moniker that goes with the with the title of what I'm trying to do. So unsupported means that from the moment I'm dropped off to the moment I'm picked up roughly 75 days later, I'm not having any support. So no resupplies. Um, I can't really speak to anyone. So there might be a few people at South Pole that I'll bump into quite literally. And in terms of the big hazards, there's no there's no wildlife in Antarctica beyond penguins and seals around the, uh, around the coast. So once I sort of move away from the coast, you get the odd lost seabird and that's about it really. So... Um, nothing to worry about on that front. And then it's mainly the conditions. Clearly, it's pretty cold down there. So it's average temperatures around about minus 20. And then the wind is the other big one that really can take the temperature down. So they're, they're the big ones, which is, you know, once you're comfortable in your own routine and own abilities, actually, you can look after yourself relatively well as long as you prepare for stuff and don't don't get lazy, I suppose, is, is the big one. Make sure you dress properly and get warm enough properly and don't sweat and things like that. It's, it's all down to the techniques and routines that you learn. And there's no um, polar bears in Antarctica, obviously. Yeah, I didn't know that until, uh, <laughs> well, it's probably just before I started looking at this, is someone told me that Arctic is, the I think it's Latin for bear, and Antarctic means no bear in Latin. Which is great. <laughs> which, which, yeah, <laughs> so fun fact. So you, you're literally carrying all of your food? Each ration pack is around about... 7,200 calories each made up of mainly nut butter. So I'm going to be part-time squirrel for this two and a half month thing. Um, Freeze-dried meal that you just rehydrate with with hot water. And then talking of water is people are like, that's a lot of water to take. I'm surrounded by ice and snow. Yes, so all you do is melt, melt down the ice and snow each evening. And I've got a nice big three-litre kettle and then 
pour it, use it, and then take two uh, one liter flask with me. So I'll have a a flask of a carbohydrate drink for the day and a flask of hot water to make another drink if I need nice hot chocolate. But they're about just under 1.5 kilos per per day worth of food. So as I go along, I'll gradually have less and less to pull with me. Antarctica is though 14 million square kilometers. I mean, that is huge, isn't it? Um, It's frozen desert. I mean, it is the most inhospitable environment in the world. How will you get through mentally? You know, there'll be times when you'll just... I you know, hate to be not being negative, but I think there might, if something goes wrong, how will you get through that? I got approached by a guy called John Watkins, who he used to be in the uh, Marines a few years ago. He he works for a company called Resilience Development Company, who, who said, do you want to do some resilience training? We'll, we'll be one of your sponsors. And I was like, oh, I've been in the Marines for just over a decade. I'm pretty sure I'm quite resilient. And actually, the skills he he taught as part of the, the lessons he gave me were they're going to come in really useful. And they, I, I thought I was a resilient individual. Um, but I mean, it, little skills like that, it's like you said, making small mistakes will, will sort of amplify in your mind when you're by yourself and you don't have anyone to play off. So he, one of the skills they taught was about dropping the peanut. So what he means by that is you made a mistake. You can't do anything about it. Just forget about it. There's no, there's no point worrying about it. So for example, you know, I, I dropped my dinner down myself and I've, I've made a mess. I've lost half my dinner. I can't scoop it up because it's, you know, it's melted into the snow or something. Um, so, so dropping the peanut is something that I've, I've used quite regularly in the build-up for it because I've made quite a few mistakes and probably bad emails or uh, bad interviews or random things throughout throughout the build-up have, have bothered me in the past. And actually, that's probably one of the main skills that I will be using. So that mental aspects I have been training for, and then I suppose the one mental side that you can't train for is the isolation. Is I've never spent seventy-five days by myself. I think the most I spent in Norway probably three or four days but even then you're coming across snowmobile tracks or someone else's ski tracks or animal tracks or you know there's trees around it's it's different so I suppose 75 days in just you and some very distant mountains is going to be um yeah interesting I'm not, I'm not sure how you do prepare for that beyond just getting on with it and sort of understanding that there is an end going back to dropping the peanut technique what is that exactly how does that work well, it's just uh, so rumination is that you know when when you do let something keep bothering you and sort of thing that keeps you up. So you can ruminate from anything about stubbing your toe earlier in the day through to you know the biggest mistake of your life, whatever that would be. And it, it just involves understanding that you you can't change it. It's happened. It's not going to affect you now. You, whatever's happened has happened. And having the cognitive maturity to just go, you know, let bygones be bygones. This is quite strange, um, but it, it does work if you recognise it as. As a peanut uh, that needs dropping, then it's, it's quite easy. So like I said, the dropping, you, you spin your dinner or spin a cup of tea or something like that. It doesn't change too much, but it's annoying. It's a psychological element of it, isn't it? It's that yeah, letting so, that go. Yeah, it's just a bit of a weird one. I, like, I just like the phrase. I've, you know, when I'm eating predominantly nuts, it's, it's, it's probably my favourite skill that he taught out of the 60 odd that he did, uh, we went through. Well, as they say in the army, crack on, isn't it? Pretty much, in a healthy way, in a healthy way. <laughs> but also... Um, the sort of being on your own for that that's that that those long periods of time um i mean i was reading about the leeds beckett university that they're going to be really studying this so there's moments when you're really kind of on your own and it's it's really pushing the human mind it's it's not a natural environment what coping mechanisms will you be using to kind of get through that i want to experience a thing i know a lot of people start these expeditions and have immediately plugged themselves into into audiobooks or into music whereas i want to try and at least have the morning where i am just with me and the the noise of whatever it is so it is going to be an experience i don't want it to be drowned out by listening to the same music i can listen to at home 
and music and podcasts and audiobooks and things like that will will come into play. Don't get don't get me wrong. It's a long time to not have anything. And um, fair play to the guys from twenty thirty years ago where they they couldn't do that. Might have had one book to read or whatever they wanted to take. So this it's probably one way, but use use those sort of stimulus as a as a bit of a treat rather than than the norm. Um, I also know that people have gone down with a Spotify account, and then Spotify needs to be connected to the internet every thirty days, and their Spotify's run out after a month, and they've got another another month or so to go, and they're they're stuck, and then they're in the uh, the spiral of absolutely nothing to do beyond listening to your skis move. And then they've got a handful of peanuts, and they don't know what to do with them. Yeah, and then they're just <laughs> gathering peanuts in their pockets. Yeah. Exactly. So you you learn you, you've got and you you've almost got like a a toolkit as people would say of things that would get you through those moments of really severe weather. I mean that wind chill of minus fifty that's that's quite brutal in itself, isn't it? So it's getting mentally prepared is is probably ninety percent of more so than than the physical fitness. The most mundane and most difficult days will probably be the days that are either nice or really plain sailing because there's nothing yeah. else to do beyond walk. Whereas if it's howling wind you'll be like oh I actually feel a bit cold here and then you've got to yeah. do something about it or concentrate on navigating or something like that they're always the probably the easier ones to get through whereas if it's just a, a plain sailing day it's going to be probably more monotonous than than the worst days if that makes sense yeah absolutely now the Austrian Space Forum is researching the exhibition on the human brain and, and how this you know psychological impact of the unfamiliar and relentless environment particularly when each day is going to be like groundhog day it's going to be the same walking what have you learned and what are they learning from that right now what what is what are you going to be feeding back to them so the austrian space forum are quite big on the european um space analog arena i suppose so space analog is the the scientists that look at the way that humans will eventually move to to mars or, or the moon because you know it needs looking at and we're eventually looking at doing that um apparently so so they like areas like iceland oman jordan and antarctica because it's similar terrain to to that of the lunar surface or the martian surface so um i approached them i wanted to do something with the expedition being such a unique experience for me rather than just sort of do it without trying to at least achieve something with it as well so what they're looking at is human factors in terms of how i cope with with stress and stresses so so they want me to record uh, an audio diary each night. And the idea behind an audio diary is you you outpour immediately. You cut, you don't self-censor, whereas if you're writing a diary, you have time to think about what you're going to write and actually go, no, no, I'm not going to write that down because I'll, I'll sound silly or whatever. So they, they want me to record an audio diary based around a few very, very broad questions so then I can give my true feelings each evening um, to them, um, as well as fill out a you know, really quick survey each evening, a sale of one to ten of how I felt the day went, how I felt physically, mentally, et cetera, et cetera. And what that's going to give them is a bit of an outlook beyond the normal sort of 40, 50 days that they generally get volunteers for. They get about six weeks out of people before they go, no, no, I can't take that much time or I don't want to do it. And it's, it's mainly the isolation. I think that's the main thing is that they're most interested in is the isolation and how perception changes after day 30 of isolation or day 50 of isolation. How do you think you'll react in, in after 30 days of isolation? Absolutely no idea. Hopefully I'll be fine. So it's not, it's not true isolation. I mean, I'll be having the odd message home. So the, there's a great system that uh, the GPS company I'll be using has where you can message and it's like an old school text message. So um, through the, to the actual um, GPS device, you can send an old, text message it takes a while to type but it's it's quite useful and then hopefully i'll be able to depend on whether be able to give a at least a weekly five ten minute phone call home using the sat phone that'd be great hopefully. and obviously from a safety perspective as well is that if anything did go wrong you have that satellite phone to to down which i 
think you'll be very reluctant to use. Yeah, so you have to speak to the the safety team every day, um, as in every evening. And if they don't hear from you for two days on the trot, they they come to your location and make sure you're okay. So um, that's partially for for their commercial business. So there's not a bloke lost somewhere in the middle of Antarctica. And then for me to um, just relay that you know I'm physically fit and feel fine and everything else. So yeah, I will be speaking to someone every day, albeit for 30, 40 seconds. And that will be reassuring for the loved your loved ones at home as well, yeah. that knowing that you've got that. And those broad questions you talked about with the Austrian Research Centre, do you know what those broad questions are now? Are they, are they the I same every them. day? I haven't properly looked at them yet. That's a good reminder. I need to start doing those. I want like a like a, a sample before I disappear off so they at least have a, a home life version of it before before I then go off and do something completely different. And what would you say to that young lad who is sort of 13, living in a flat, um, hasn't really got much access to anything else? What would you say to that young lad or young girl? There's definitely organisations out there. It might take a bit of research, especially in a city. There's, there's, there's groups out there. And if you want to try something different, don't be afraid to just turn up. Everyone's got a little community and there's very few communities that are actually unfriendly so even if you want to go down your local bouldering wall and that's how you you start climbing is there's a bouldering center in town that do free sessions on a thursday night that's that's probably a good place to start or, or whatever you want to achieve and I, I suppose that goes with sport as well as um going back to rugby i haven't played rugby for probably five or six years and i've just wanted to join so i joined a team team around here and it was genuinely quite nervous before i turned up on the first session a load of blokes have been playing with each other for 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 however long and then the new guy turns up and then you know you've got, got a load of new friends now a year and a half down the line but putting yourself out there make sure you're available to to try this and don't say no to stuff that you might regret later on adventure's really scalable and i know people see this and say how amazing everything but this is like i said the culmination of starting at the age of 14 through to now so people look at it and go you know adventure is not achievable but for some people an adventure is is a walk along the cliffs near their near their house or going out on a rainy day around the park with the dog or something it's it's all scalable and as long as you're pushing your own personal limits of comfort and understanding it, it means you're you're you know you're growing and adapting and then it means that the next next week or next month you can then go for a little bit further or go for a slightly different walk or go on a different route so it's all scalable and it's all it's all meaningful so as long as it's it's down to you to um to find that level um but there's nothing wrong with having a, a 5k park run on a saturday morning being your level of adventure because that's ideal. If, if you're getting something from that, then that's perfect. Um, it's just this is this is my version of a 5k park run. This is the first time anybody's ever done this. I mean, Preet obviously did it, but that you're going 500 miles further. You're starting at the coast of Berkner Island, aren't you? And you're finishing at the base. I mean, it's 2,000 kilometers. I mean, it's it's just it's mind blowing, isn't it? Really, that yeah. I try not <laughs> try not to think about it as a whole. <laughs> I suppose the easiest thing is the, the classic never think of anything in, in big terms or break it down into chunks, which is what I'm doing, I, I suppose. And I've, in my mind, already got it into chunks in terms of different phases of the expedition. And even if that's too much, I've got it down into days. And then if days are too much, I've got it down into the 90-minute chunks I'll be skiing. So it is manageable. Again, you never look at something in its totality. You, you to- don't. That's a really good way to look at anything, isn't it? If you're try, if you, you know, facing a big challenge or whatever it is you're facing, if you break it down into small chunks, it's far easier to deal with, isn't it? Being a military family, uh, you, you know, military families are very used to long periods of separation. Um, you know, we talk a lot about as as military families that long periods of separation just builds a stronger family. It um, makes you more resilient, adaptable to situations, to change. 
How do you feel about leaving your family? Me and Abby have done done longer apart than this, and I think she's happier because it's like I said, there's no huge dangers beyond the the elements and my own stupidity. So um, I think she's happier in that term, uh, that regard. And then I think this is probably the longest I've been at home without having gone away. I used to, we never moved around doing the the patch life stuff. She's always had a career, so she's stayed at home, and I've I've moved up during the weeks. So, I mean. Weirdly, I've been away less over you know over the past year than I would have done had I just stayed in just in a normal office job wherever wherever I was doing the, the Sunday night to Friday afternoon routine. Um, so I mean, we're we're used to. I suppose the only difference is is having a daughter now, it's a brand new entity in the house. So um, I'll miss her, but it's, it's I wanted to get it out of the way before um, she could understand Christmas and things. Seeing as I'm christmas i don't want to be away on her first christmas when she can fully understand what what it is and get excited about it i don't want to miss that basically they, they said 23rd of january i'll be picked up no matter what so 23rd of january is the last day i could possibly be on in antarctica and then i'm hopefully back by the end of january when do you leave if i leave uh, a week tomorrow so then i've got about uh, a week in chile sorting out admin and getting everything re-repacked again and then Gosh. i fly to antarctica around about the 2nd or 3rd of November to then hopefully start a couple of days after that. And they'll land you and then that feeling of you're on your own then um, as it as it jets off and you're going to start straight from there. Well, weirdly, I've got to ski north to get to my start point by about 10 kilometres. So I've got to go the wrong way to start with, with my oh. being the heaviest, but at least I'll be fresh. So I want yeah. to get that done and probably ski back to where I got dropped off at least on the first day. Otherwise, it's a bit of a weird one. You've gone literally gone backwards. Psychologically, you'd be dropping that peanut <laughs> yeah, the peanut's well dropped. I'll pick it back up when I go past again. Yeah, exactly. Are you thinking of what next, or are you just kind of really focused on this? Obviously, adventure, adventure at the moment. But that time that you're on your own is that an opportunity to think about, you know, what next? Oh no, Diff, I'm weirdly trying not to think about what what's next to focus on this. But actually, it's a welcome distraction from from badly packing things into big black bags. But um, no, like I said, I'm I'm out in Sweden. Um, doing instructing and hopefully uh, for following winter. So what's that? January, 2025, start a range of packages. So like I said, it's a, the aim is to get people at an affordable rate out to experience this environment. Um, a lot of the, the companies that give people the access to the polar world um, charge an arm and a leg for it. And I want to try and keep that cost as low as possible. So people for the same price of skiing holiday to the Alps can afford to go to Northern Sweden and, and have a sort of an expert experience without having to go through several loans to, to get there so that's the plan and um you know if that starts someone off looking at other polar experiences and doing expeditions for themselves and that's ideal and hopefully build up from from that but yeah work in northern sweden to get people into this world because it's, it's amazing and genuinely life-changing why would you say life-changing i think in the uk because it's it's really crowded it's you know we got what 70 odd million people in quite a small country whereas Using Sweden as an example, they've got a slightly bigger country with 8 million people, of which I think 75% live at Stockholm or below. So it's, it's very concentrated towards the south. And as you get further and further north, it's more remote. So it's the space you, you feel, even though it's you know not not sort of American-sized plains or Antarctic-sized deserts, it's the space you, you feel in, in the country. And then there's a, it's like a peacefulness that you don't get in the UK. It's the snow that dampens all the noise down. It's the... the brisk air so you sort of know you're there and then small things like um i don't know what making a cup of tea in the morning takes 20 minutes you've got to 
do all the admin to do it, get the stove on, whereas it makes you appreciate the joys of modern life by just being able to flick a switch and having a cup of tea in five minutes. Um, really, really makes you understand that, you know, you can you can do things the hard way and actually thrive in it. You know, modern life makes people soft and it's good to get back to basics. And like I said, that applied hardship and applied resilience is, is good for the body and definitely good for the mind. And how do we follow you? So if we want to watch you, how do we follow you? The website is frozendagger.co.uk and on there we'll have uh, an interactive map where it will track me, my GPS set to give a new location every few hours. Um, and then each evening I'll be, depending on weather again, um, given a rundown of the day, about 90 seconds, a little audio message for each day. And then my uh, Instagram is samcox.official, which will have slightly different content on it. And whilst I'm away probably two, three times a week, uh, the guys are going to update it and um, put some, hopefully some interesting stuff up there about the um, about the expedition preparation. And there's loads of stuff about all the preparation I've done so far. So I've been told it's quite interesting. <laughs> It's so amazing what you're doing and, and you'll inspire so many people. It's just incredible. So thank you for your time. Awesome. No, thank you. And best of luck with it. We'll see you when you get back. I'll buy you a Greg's. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> I'm not Northern though. What's going on? <laughs> the Oggy Pasty Company or something. because yeah. you mentioned it. I thought I'll buy you a Greg's. It's fine. <laughs> that was the Team Forces podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, Please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode.